I love wine regions that are undeniably genuine and that always over deliver. For me, that sums up Paso Robles. In fact, the first time I got on a plane in over a year was to visit Paso back in April. Paso sits in the heart of California's central coast. It's a big wine region with many diverse microclimates that allows for a stunning array of grapes to thrive. In short, Paso has range. They aren't known for just one or two varietals. They make interesting blends, cabs and Bordeaux-inspired wines, Syrah and Rhone-style wines, Zinfandel, Tempranillo, and even beautiful white wines. Side note, my number one wine of 2020 was a Zen Tempranillo blend from Paso. I also love that it's made up of over 200 family-owned wineries, salt-of-the-earth people who put their heart and soul into their wines. Paso Robles is special, and the word is getting out. You need to go check it out and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. You can learn more at PasoWine.com. That's P-A-S-O Wine.com. Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a black wine guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the Mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey, everybody, what's up? It is your boy, MJ, and welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is veteran sommelier, author and co-founder and chief imaginator at Kalamata's Kitchen. Everybody say hello to Sarah Thomas. Uh, Sarah was a sommelier at the acclaimed La Bernadan in New York City. She is now the co-founder and chief imaginator at Kalamata's Kitchen, where she brings together her lifelong passions for both food and books. Uh, the daughter of two South Indian immigrants, Sarah grew up in the rural town of Somerset, Pennsylvania, and was surrounded by food from a young age. She would spend summers in Kerala visiting her parents, that is in India, uh, forming some of her earliest food memories. While working at various restaurants in Pittsburgh and then at La Bernadette, Sarah obtained the prestigious Advanced Somali Certification, and she was featured in the popular Psalm film series. Through her storytelling work with Kalamata's Kitchen, Sarah hopes to create a confident character that other children of color can see themselves in, while also encouraging all kids to look at different foods and cultures with a sense of curiosity and compassion. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. Well, I'm so happy you're here. Tell everybody, what are, what are we drinking this evening, this afternoon? Today we are drinking some Pinot Noir from Chanterev. Um, this is uh, their Paris L'Hôpital 2019. comes from just west of Marange in uh, the Côte d'Ivoire. And why this wine? Just curious. I'm, I, well, first of all, I love this producer. Okay. Um, I think that I'm attracted to wines that have a lot of, that you can kind of feel energy and intensity from. And um, oftentimes with Burgundy, I think there's this aura of like, you know, the very technical and the very, like it has to be very kind of 
sophisticated and perfect and technical and you have to talk about it and think about it and be in te- like kind of in your head about it. And I think that you can have a very technical, beautiful, precise and pure wine that still has emotion and energy and is enjoyable to drink. And I think that's what um, uh, they achieve with every single one of their bottlings. So look I brought a, it because I'm passionate about it. Look at Sarah still flexing <laughs> her psalm chops. She still got it. <laughs> No, story. no, that was great. I love that. No, and, and, and that's, no, that's, that's, I love that. And that's, that's, you're right. I mean, there is that aura of precision and just, it's about the terroir, but also, like you said, just when someone, when that passion, you know, and I think there's a whole new crop of younger winemakers that are coming out there doing that, really infusing like uh, their energy into, into their wines. And that's not to say that the wine, I mean, like to reiterate, the wine is like technically, like beautifully oh, yeah. made. And like they, the two of them together bring such knowledge and expertise and years of experience to the wines. But what I love also is that they're like, they're creators of a thing that their goal is to get that to express itself. Um, which I think is beautiful when you can work so hard and bring so much expertise to allowing some to have a product to shine and speak for itself. That's what is so, I think, special about it. Super cool. So um, before we hop in, why don't you get a little closer to the table? I'm worried she might not be in the picture. I'm worried. But she, yeah, she's good? Yeah. Okay. All right. Awesome. So let's start at the beginning. Sure. You were born and raised in Somerset, Pennsylvania. Um, tell me about growing up in Somerset. Like, where is that in relation to Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, or a major city? And uh, what was it? What was it like being in Somerset, Pennsylvania? Um, well, uh, Somerset's a really little town. It's like an hour and a half southeast of Pittsburgh. Um, so this is Western Pennsylvania. Um, it is very rural. Uh, my father went there because he's a doctor and he was an emergency room physician um, in Somerset. And so I was born and raised there. And you know, uh, it was it was interesting and different. And like, I can look back with a little bit more love than I had, I felt when I was actually there. Um, you know, for one, it was a beautiful place to grow up, right? I, I spent every day outside in like the woods and then I got to come home and my mom and my parents have a, we had a really strong like family life and my mom was always cooking. So there were all these like really beautiful things and she's, she made a lot of our Indian food at home. And then, you know, you deal with the, the kind of the othering of children was is even more stark when you're one of the only non-white people in an entire mm-hmm. town. Mm-hmm. And then you, you know, that's compounded generation to generation. You're one of the only kids that's not white. And you it's, you know, different circumstances. It was difficult. I didn't enjoy, uh, I didn't always enjoy it. I didn't always fit in. Yeah. Didn't feel like I could really celebrate, um, you know, the things that I thought were really unique and special about myself. So, you know, kind of this, I think this is a problem often with a lot of first gen kids is you feel the need to assimilate versus celebrate, you know, and that's one of the things that I try to get away from, but that's, that's a direct inspiration from my own childhood. Yeah. Um, I got a, um, a close friend and he's like my brother and he lives out in uh, Roswell or Boswell, Johnstown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm like, what the fuck are you pretty, doing living out here, bro? Pretty close to Johnson. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like, it's, it's like, it's out there. <clears throat> it is it, and I can only imagine being a, a child out there, like the only child of color. Like that's got to be like. I mean, (laughs) there were lots of lovely people too. It's not not like, you know, there were like pitchforks and stuff, but (laughs) there's definitely like a tension that you, when you're a kid and no one's talking about these issues when, when I was growing up anyway, no one was talking about it. Um, You know, you, you just, you just always attention and you just, I think the, the problem is coming from not, you don't know where you fit in. You don't quite fit in here. 
But then, you know, as you pointed out, I went to India every year too, and I didn't mm-hmm. quite fit in there either, right? So I wasn't quite right. Indian enough for Indians and not quite American enough for Americans. So I think this is like, that's, you know, when I spoke about liminality earlier, liminal yeah. spaces, I feel like a lot of first-gen kids kind of occupy that. Interesting. Um, so your, your parents, so first-gen, so your parents were immigrants. Um, where was your father educated? Was he educated in the States? Was he educated? Okay. Yeah, yeah, I mean, well, he became a doctor. He studied in India at first. And okay. And then he came here and, you know, you have to go through a whole different process yeah. to, to, to practice here. Um, but he actually lived in, he moved to New York first, um, did, you know, a, a residency program in, in Brooklyn in like the 80s. And then he was like, let me find the opposite of this. To, <laughs> and I still like get upset with him because I'm like, you mean I could have grown up in New York? <laughs> and, um, but he, he did find the opposite of Brooklyn in the 80s in Somerset, Pennsylvania. And that's where I grew up instead. <laughs> wow. Now, were your parents married when, when he moved to New York or did he meet your wife? Is his, your mother here in the States or? Uh, he went back and they got married and, and then they. Traditional they, marriage? They arranged marriage. marriage. Right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, then my mom came over like the year before I was born and then there, there I was. <laughs> And I, I, I think I – so and you're your only child in, in any sibling? I have two brothers. You have two brothers, older or younger? I have one older and one younger. Okay. So what was that like being the middle child? Was it like – was it like, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha? Like did you have that middle child syndrome? Well, you're only a girl, but like what was that like to have an older brother and a younger brother? I didn't – I actually – I feel like I got along better with my older brother when I was younger and like not at all with my younger brother. Um, and now we're all good. I don't – I don't remember it – I was just – I felt like I was always like – in charge of things like I was really bossy okay. um so I don't know what I'm sure that was terrible from their perspectives but I was probably a brat <laughs> <laughs> I can admit it now so tell me about um uh Kerala India so you know um you said you went every summer yeah I mean family was really really important to us a lot my grandparents were still there um I went both to, to Kerala and to Chennai which is where my mom's parents were and um you know, we, we spent all, like, like we would leave like the day after school let out and we'd come back like four days before school started again. So we were gone the whole summer, um, just traveling around South India, especially like visiting all of our relatives, all the aunts and uncles, all the cousins. It was really important to us to maintain those connections. Um, and my parents' generation, I feel was really, really good at it in a way that like we, I, I think about this a lot, like our, my generation of like cousins and, and we are more, it's easier for us to be connected like through the internet right, right. and we're so much worse at it. So much worse at it. Like right. I don't talk to them as much as my parents talked to their cousins and they had to like dial another number to dial another number to get to like to talk on the phone. So, or like fly across the world. Um, wow. but, it's, it, but it's interesting and it, it really, it did um, give me a strong sense of sort of like structure and family and, the importance of, of making time for all of those things. So you said, <clears throat> and I love to learn, South India. So where, like, what, is there any bordering countries to South India or like, what is like, what's. No. So like on the, on the Indian, like subcontinental no, peninsula, okay. um, if you're looking at the like Southwestern tip of the, the triangle, essentially, um, that's where Kerala is. Okay. And then the bottom, like the, basically the, the, the other side is, uh, where Chennai, the, a city in Tamil, the state of Tamil Nadu and Kerala are the kind of the south, southernmost, um, that's the tip of India. And then Kerala is on the West, Tamil Nadu and the city of Chennai are on the, the East. So was there ever a time when, um, like 
you know, you're when you're a kid, you know, certain things. Was there a time when you're like, oh my god, like you you notice the difference between your life in America and your summers? Like, you know what I mean? Like, did you notice a stark difference? Like, what? Like, how old were you like when that kind of hit you? I don't remember how old I was. I mean, I always knew that things were different. Like, I remember being really struck really early by how quiet it was when we'd come home. Like in India, you're you're always like, India's like a study in intensity. It's like, it's like, it's loud. And there's like all kinds of, there's colors and there's smells. And there's also like, you know, abject poverty and like really like obscene wealth kind of on the same sidewalk every day. Mm-hmm. And all of those things are always in front of you like all the time. So it's, you're on, on, on. And then when we'd come home, I remember one time we landed in, in Dulles or something and we got you know, started driving home and we were on this huge, you know, the highways just seemed so big and empty and quiet. And I just started crying and I didn't really know why. And, and like, my mom was like, it's just really quiet, Sarah. I was like, it is, it's so quiet. <laughs> so I do remember that really early. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't know how old I was. Yeah, really. yeah no, I just, six, seven. you know, you try and learn. And, uh, you know, I just, every time you see a document, it's, it's a very populated country and it is very busy. It just seems very vibrant. Love it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's 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 a totally different, um, it's a, just a totally different life experience. So, you s- mentioned earlier um, when we were warming up that you know your mom was a really good cook and yeah. she would cook a lot of uh, Indian food, your favorites. Um, so that the question I was thinking, so so where was she getting all the spices? Was she, were you bringing them home with you? Like, is that how? Like. She brought a lot there's of no, spices like, home from India. You can't just hop down, you know, the turnpike and go to like Middlesex County, New Jersey, where there's all kinds of, you know, every Asian cuisine from that part of the world is like there's a market for it. Oh, you, know you I mean? mean in summer, summer yeah, she's yeah, getting yeah, stuff? Yeah, yeah. There was we used to drive to Pittsburgh. Okay. Once I think it was probably once a month. Maybe it was more frequent. But we all piled in the car and drove to Pittsburgh and like. There was an Indian. There was a Patel okay. Brothers in in Monroeville. Actually, we didn't even go the whole way into Pittsburgh. We went to Monroeville, okay. and um, you know, we do all of our Indian shopping, and uh, that's that's what we did. Like that was like an outing, um, and she'd get you know the curry leaves and the specific chilies she liked, and uh, you know, like frozen grated. I remember her coming home with like bags and bags of grated frozen coconut because here you can only get like the shredded sweetened one that's dried, yeah. and mm-hmm. this you know, so stuff like that she would get there, and then. My, um, she'd bring a lot of spices, like dried spices and stuff from India when we'd come every summer. And I mean, there were fewer baggage restrictions then, I think. And yeah. like, we had like tons of bags, <laughs> like tons of bags. Like, of, and it was just, it was just like clothes and, uh, spices. <laughs> <laughs> and Patel Brothers, that's like a big deal, like in Indian cuisine, right? Like, they're mm-hmm. like, yeah, I mean, I, I've heard that. Like, it's like, it's like the shop, right? Like they're huge. Like they're a big kind of deal. Huge deal. I mean, yeah. it's it brought um it brought like the all the things that you know all of the that generation of immigrants was missing so deeply. Brought it to like every you know neighborhood in of every big city that you can imagine, and that's huge for for a diaspora that's missing home. Yeah. Um, you know, to be able to you know kind of branch out like that and fill that need across the country is truly an incredible business story. Yeah, yeah. That's- you got to talk about the Patel Bros. You got to get one of the guys on here, man. <laughs> um, so another thought I had was um, 
like how did you did you dress traditionally when you were in India like or did you just kind of wear your American clothes or like sometimes and it was actually like a point of contention with my mom <laughs> because I felt like my cousins were like not wearing traditional Indian clothes all the time and my mom was like but this is how they dress you know because she it, I, she had this vision and to her India was like when she left got it you know and so when we'd go back she'd be like you have to have your long sleeves and your long pants and you have to do the you know, all you dress conservatively and wear eyeliner and all this stuff. And I was like, my cousins are in jeans and like, and like, what? Why am I wearing a salvar right now? So it was, it was a point. It was definitely a point of contention. Um, they had she, she and my father were both kind of like, this is what India is. But they left years ago, so <laughs> it was pretty funny. There's a lot of really funny photos because of that. <laughs> so. Um... <clears throat> Like and when you when you would go there with your mom, like would she cook with like her sisters and her family? Like would they like, like was there big family style meals? I mean, I you know I, I watch movies, right? So I'm trying not to. I'm trying to like get a sense of like the, what it really is like, not just what we see in a movie. Yeah, no food. I mean, food is so central. Okay. I mean, I'm speaking very generally, but I think it's really central to like most Indian culture, like all over India, and it's, that's definitely true in my home. And I mean, every one of my aunts is a fabulous cook too, right? So like you know, we'd show up and there, I remember going into my aunt's house in Chennai and she would always have like our favorites of hers that she'd make. Like she made this amazing like fried chicken thing with curry leaves and, um, and like all these different things that we, she knew we loved and they'd be waiting for us when we got mm. there and the smell would be, would like hit you as you were like going to the apartment. And then, yeah. And so my mom, my mom didn't know how to cook when she moved to, uh, the U S which is weird and unique but then she learned by her mother would um write her these like beautiful letters teeny beautiful script that she kept like on both sides of the arrow mail if you've ever seen those things uh and um she'd write recipes and she'd get recipes from my dad's uh mother and then when she'd go to india like she's she st- after we showed up she started to learn how to make all the recipes that like my aunts made that we really loved and mm-hmm. she started off not knowing anything and thinking everything had to be like very salty and very hot um and is now i think widely acknowledged in my family as one of like the best cooks and everyone comes to our house for like her food and has their requested dishes and she loves i think she really loves like having that reputation and also (laughs) like feeding other people (laughs) so um um, what was your what was like your favorite dish like you go see mom what do you what do you want like what's your requested dish uh, I usually request she always makes like a couple standards like she'll 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 have that beef dish like mm-hmm. a, this is like fried beef called uh, erchio theta and um, it's like really like a lot of coconut and spices it was amazing um, and then I love like all of her seafood things so she'll she'll do like a, a madras crab curry um, that sounds good. Which is so good. It's probably my most requested thing. Uh, everything she makes is good. Yeah. Even then, really simple things like, um, like uh, we call it kappa, but it's just it's tapioca. Yep. Um, she just like steams it and makes a chamandi, which is like a really spicy condiment with it. It's like it's so simple, and it's like one of my absolute favorite things. So mm. she loves that I like the simple things too, because it doesn't set that much work for her. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, um, I understand that you are, uh, you self-proclaimed professional try things twicer. <laughs> yes. Okay. What is, where, where did that phrase come from? This came from, um, I, I, 
whenever I love to taste food, I've been obsessed with food since I was a kid. And it's like, all it's like what I think about all the time. It's like what I'm going to eat next. And um, I am convinced that if there's something that I don't like, the problem's probably me. Um, so like, there's a, like, if there's an ingredient, so I don't, I don't typically like salmon that much, for example. I don't know why, but I'm not, it's not salmon. I'm convinced it's me. So whenever there's something on a menu that I haven't had before and it's a different preparation or whatever, I'll be like, I, I want to know, like, I want to try it this way because I haven't tried it this way. Maybe this is the way that really makes me like this thing. Um, so, so I will, it's not even just to try things twice or I will try things like a million times because I'm convinced I'm the problem if I don't like something. Um, and usually I'm right. Like I, there's very few things that I've, I've, I've found some iteration that I don't enjoy. And then, you know, for Kalamata's kitchen, because I have this obsession with like trying and trying and trying, we're trying to get kids to keep their minds open to try things. And Kalamata and Al Dente, her alligator pal, um, they have a mantra where they try each, they promise to try each new food at least two times. So I'm trying to lead that charge. Um, but really it's Kalamata and Al Dente leading it. <laughs> yeah, I get, get a copy of that from my wife because like, she's like, I don't you know, <clears throat> doesn't like seafood. You know, really, weird, but she likes spaghetti and crabs. Um, but then doesn't like lobster and doesn't like shrimp, doesn't like scallops and... And so I don't get to eat enough fish. And I'm like, I'm going to make her read the book. I'm going to make her take the taste book. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before we leave uh, your childhood, um, do you think there was any lessons you picked up um, in the kitchen when, like, with your grandmother and your aunts when you go visit uh, India? Anything that, like, kind of made of uh, stays with you today? Because I, I would have to assume you're probably a decent cook in, in your own right at this point. Thank you for assuming that. Um, <laughs> I'm okay. I'm I'm good. I'm not at their level. I wouldn't say, but um, I think the it's it's hard to like, kind of say exactly what the lesson is. But I do think it's really I I didn't they didn't ever let me help right. Like the the kitchen was very much like their domain, mm -hmm. but I was in or around it all the time. And I think the thing that has stuck with me the most is this just by being present and like not I wasn't always actively cooking, but they were like including me in different ways. Like, do you like how that smells? Isn't that amazing? Like what that sound makes? And like I'd ask questions. So I think the lesson is like I to whatever degree that you can involve people around you in the process of cooking and then eating it together, the more communal the experience the better mm. um and so i i try to do that like i if i ever um you know i i when i cook for people i try and like make sure that i'm always talking to them while i'm cooking and they're involved and if they want to help they can but then that continues into the conversations that we have and i just that communal aspect i think is so strong and foundational in my life because of all of the amazing cooks in my life oh that's nice i love that um so it's time to leave somerset pa <laughs> and you go <laughs> and you're off to college um but it doesn't sound like you went to like a you know like a, a major urban area um <laughs> mary baldwin university well, staunton yes. virginia then it was mary baldwin college and pronounced stanton, stanton. even though there is a u in it yeah um, i believe you yeah i it, mispronounce words all the time i tell people i barely speak english <laughs> no, no it's, way it's i'm spelled yeah. stanton, but it's, it's, <laughs> It's a, I guess it's a Southern thing. I don't know. Say Stan. Um, I, yes, I went um, because the teachers in my school in Somerset kept going on strike and it was like getting to the ages where I had to like take the SATs and think about college and my parents were really worried about what that would be. So they were weighing like the, um, 
They were weighing whether I should go to boarding school. And then this brochure arrives that because I'd been taking the I took the SATs for practice really early, and you they put you on you know college board puts you on these lists and whatever. Um, so I got college an offer board to, sells your information. Yeah, I get, <laughs> yeah, also that. Um, for sure, they did. That is exactly what happened. Um, well, I got an offer basically to go to uh, college early. Um, and oh. So I actually left after tenth grade. I left Somerset and I went to Mary Baldwin College. They had a program there that was an early entrance program for young women, um, and that's what I did. So I got out when I was sixteen from uh, from Somerset right after tenth grade. Wow! 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 And, uh, yeah, went to Stanton, which uh, was yes, no. It's a very small town. Um, <laughs> it's probably good for an, uh, a sixteen year old girl though, and uh, but it was very empowering. It was all women. Um, I learned a lot about, you know, like kind of, I, there was a lot that I had to learn, I think when I, when I got there and it was really kind of an illuminating and very empowering experience. So yeah. Huge well, proponent of all female education. <laughs> um, what was that like? So yeah. So like you come, I mean, that's interesting. Um, first of all, you're 16, which is awesome. It's dope, you know, good for you. Um, and I don't think I could have went away at 16. I didn't, it took me forever to finish college and I didn't go out of state till I was like 21, 22. Um, so kudos for you. Um, you said, uh, you had to learn a lot. Like what was that like? Um, so now you're, now you're, you're, you're a woman of color, young woman of color, and now you're at an all women's college. Was there any, like, I mean, even to this day, there seems to be issues inside of women's rights inside of, you know, women of color and blah, blah, blah. So what was that like arriving on a campus? Um, 16 years old. I mean, the the campus itself um, had a pretty diverse population. So that itself was different for okay. me. Um, it was kind of the first time in my life that I was not the only one, right? Mm-hmm. In, in mm-hmm. terms of like being the only minority. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was really interesting and like kind of, it's you know, it's an eye-opening experience. And coming from really rural America to that was a big change. And I'm glad that I got to experience it at a smaller microcosm before, like, just being dumped in a big city. You know, that's it's different. Um, and then, you know, it was it was really hard. Like, I was used to just being good at things because I was in a small town <laughs> in Pennsylvania. And then I had to work really hard, you know. And um, there's a – you talked about, like, being ready to go away. I – I'm not a proponent of sending, I, I wouldn't, I don't, if I had a child, I don't think I would send them away early for school only because there's a really big difference between being intellectually capable of handling academic work and then also being emotionally ready to handle what it's like to live without your parents and be treated as an adult when you're not an adult. I don't think 18 year olds are emotionally adults That's yet. That's for damn sure. So, you know, it, there's, there was a lot of growing up to do very quickly, um, but all in all, you know, I couldn't couldn't change it. Wouldn't change it. I guess. Um, what did you major in? I started as pre med, but um, I ended up graduating with uh, English and political science. Okay, so yeah. were you thinking about law school or just a writer? Or I was thinking about all of it. I really didn't know. I really didn't know. Um, I did do. I ended up doing a master's in English literature, um, but I. And I at the time, I think it was like maybe I'll be a professor, maybe I'll be a lawyer. I. I didn't know for sure. Took the LSAT, went to grad school, did all that stuff. But like, I wasn't, I didn't have the the passion yet. I hear you. <laughs> no, I hear you. Um, I was just laughing because she's like, yeah, and I did grad school. Where'd you go to grad school? I went to the University of Cambridge. <laughs> for English Renaissance literature. It was, it she's like, like, a good she, She's like, oh. <laughs> Be proud of, you went to Cambridge. Jesus, that's like, that's like the number one. 
I think Harvard has a better reputation. Well, just because it's American, but like Cambridge, that's like it. That's it for education in the world. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's, it's pretty good. It was, it was an incredible experience. What was that like? So how so how old were you when you went over uh, to Cambridge? I took so I graduated when I was twenty undergrad uh, twenty probably yeah, and then I took a year off. Okay. And I lived in India with my grandparents actually. Wow. And then I got I went to Cambridge, so I was like twenty one, twenty two. What was that like living in India for a year? In the full year, it was most of the year, okay. um, and it was honestly probably one of the most important years of my life because um, it was just me with that. My mm-hmm. my grandparents weren't well, so okay. that's why I was home, okay. and my grandfather passed while I was there, and uh, it was tough. It was it was another big kind of growing up experience for me, um, but I got became very very close with my uncle and my grandmother because of it. Nice. It was important, very yeah. important, and I and I worked in a school for intellectually challenged children. And um, that was also really formative for me in a lot of ways. It was, it was very, very emotional to have that, like this, like be doing this very joyful, productive thing during the day, and then like go home. And there was, you know, it was it was harder at home, um, and uh, but it was really solidifying. Like I was seeing that, like my love was actually like, I was very happy and felt very productive and useful when I was around kids, mm. um, and that really brought that back for me, like brought it home. Um, <clears throat> literally, it's just light bulb just went off of my head. I mean, I probably knew it somewhat, but I was like, oh, Cambridge, University of Cambridge, England. Where's Harvard? It's in Cambridge, Mass. Literally, I just made that connection. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> like, oh, my God. <laughs> it's not the wine, guys. I've had uh, two sippy sips. <laughs> But not because it's not delicious. I mean, it's oh, it's right. delicious. I'm about to go in on it. It really is. I like, um, you know, it's funny um, with, uh, you know, Pinot or Burgundy, but even, you know, wherever it's grown, this is, I like the, this is a darker expression. It's got the darker, richer color, um, got nice mushroom and foresty stuff going on, but like more dark fruit. So um, it's not because of that. It's just because I'm, I, that just literally, I mean, everything, just about. Everything on the East Coast, except for the South, Florida, is named after something in England. So, you know, New Jersey, New York. Somerset. <laughs> yeah, Somerset. <laughs> Suffolk County. I mean, you know, it's, it's so. Um, so what was like like after Cambridge? So after Cambridge, I felt burnt out on academics. And I, um, the experience with my grandparents and the children that I worked with, had actually made me want to go back to med school. So I came back, um, I moved back to Pittsburgh, actually, which is, you know, close enough to home, but not home. Mm-hmm. And my little brother was starting um, undergrad there in the fall. So I came back to Pittsburgh. Carnegie Mellon, you Pitt. He was at Pitt. And um, I decided to do a post-bac for, for, for medicine. Um, so I was taking basically all the, like, leftover classes I had to take to qualify to get into medical school. Uh, and so, but I was like, you know what, I need to do something not academic as well. I've been doing this, this, you know, for this many years and I need to do something else. So I decided like just without too much thought, I was like, well, I think bartenders are fascinating. I think I'll be a bartender. <laughs> like as simple as that. Like I love it. And um, I love that. The guy I'd written my dissertation on was a, was a uh, metaphysical poet, but also a physician. And all of the medicines in the Renaissance are just booze. So like <laughs> you, he, think? you know. So I was like, I was like, well, I, maybe I could come up with cocktails based on this guy's medicine. It was silly, as silly and that's naive actually, and no, wide-eyed that's actually as that. Um, kind of dope, actually. It was. Fun. 
fun. I ha- yeah. And so I was like, I like marched into a nice restaurant. And I was like, I'd like to be a bartender, please. And they were like, okay. <laughs> um, hold up. Do you, have you ever worked in a restaurant? And I was like, nope. But eventually, after many rejections, I actually did get hired at the what uh, at that time was the I would say the nicest restaurant in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. um, doing really exciting things with a very good bar program. It was called Spoon. Sadly, no longer there. They just opened, and it was amazing. They hired me as a host, and so, uh, but with the promise that I'd get to learn how to be a bartender there, and I did, and I loved it. Fell absolutely in love with it. That's so funny. Um, you're not the first one. Yeah, we had Yannick on, and uh, like, I mean, he comes from a family that was in a restaurant, but he said Sam Malone. Like, he's like, I thought it was just so cool to be a bartender. So Sam, cool. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you're like, it's like, you know, that is so funny. So, um. When did you start at uh, Bar Marco? Mm, I think it was 2012. Okay. I'm so bad at dates. <laughs> and that was um, – and when you went there, um, was it in the uh, beverage program? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I'd been a bartender at Spoon at that point for a little bit. And then um, uh, the, the young men who opened Bar Marco were friends. And they, um, they were like – the guy who – uh, was running the wine at the time, um, wine program at the time, had amazing taste, and I didn't know anything about wine. And he kind of at that point recognized that I would learn some stuff okay. if I was just prompt, like given the right prompts. And he was like, he loved wine, but didn't really love the service aspect of it. So he was like, if you just learn some things about these wines, will you come and like pick up some shifts here and like do this dinner and whatever? And then like suddenly I was just like on the schedule there and working there. Um, but it was, I credit him and that kind of transition with my real like wine aha moments. Um, Cause he was opening really great things that I had no context for, but he had no pretension about sharing with me. So it was a really genuine, beautiful introduction to really great wine. That sparked the love. Okay. Um, also, in 2012, you became a published author. Was that when the original – when was your first book? No, out? no. That came later. Okay. That came later. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, <clears throat> we're we're going to get to the book later. Okay. So how long were you at Bar Marco? Two, a little over two years, I think. Okay. Yeah. And then um, – like you said, um, he kind of really was generous and saw that you could learn about wine. Is that That's when you started your uh, formal wine education? Exactly right. Okay. So that tra- that kind of transitioned from Spoon to Bar Marco. I, was, I started that kind of passion while I was doing both, and then I was at Bar Marco. And I eventually, by the time I was done there, I, I ended up – I was running the wine program. Um, but, yes, that's where they really invested in me. Like, they knew that – even though I was, like, done with academics, they were like, you're an academic. Please, please go study what you need to study and, like, get your certifi- certifications because no matter how what you say, like, that's clearly still important to you. Um, so that's what I did. And it was – yeah, I really fell hard into studying wine and I loved it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I um, couldn't do it after grad school. I, I hated school. So good for you. It was a different kind of studying. It though, is. Because I, I know got it to is. Approach but... it from so many different angles, yeah. right? Like in grad school, I was doing a one pretty niche topic, mm-hmm. um, and with wine, it was like not only. I think what was interesting about it to me, from an academic perspective, was not was also that like I was learning things and getting to share them right away mm-hmm. with people who are interested in hearing them. So mm-hmm. like 
like my enthusiasm for learning was then translated into service. And I'm sure I said some really stupid things as I was learning about wine. Like, did you know this is Pinot Noir? Like, because I had, I was learning it. And like to, to whoever I was saying that to, to their credit, they were never like, you're an idiot. Like, of course it is. People were like excited that I was excited. Right, I mean, there were, right. it was really fun to, to be excited to learn and share knowledge that was so new to me. Like it was, I love, I, I miss that time. <laughs> yeah. And and I would I would I would venture to guess though. Um I'm sure there were some people who were nice, but you you've you've been in this business. I mean there's people like oh, I hate Sauvignon Blanc. Oh, got a nice sure. puy me? Yeah. You know, or sure. like or like, oh my God, I don't drink Chardonnay, just white burgundy. Okay. Yeah. I I, never, <laughs> I, I tried not to take that stuff personally. <laughs> and just like people were never mean to me when I was learning stuff. I tried very hard to not like I wasn't I just I wasn't like you dummy. Like, you know, it was an, it was like was it annoying? Sure, but like it was only after years of doing it. At first I was like, you know what's so interesting? Like, you know, I was still so I guess wide-eyed about the whole thing. I was like Let's use this as a teaching moment, which is not so much the case after you've done it for 10 years. But. <laughs> All right. Um. That's why I still enjoy talking to people after 10 years. You know, we're, we're going to take a quick break um, and we'll be right back with more with Sarah Thomas. Hey, everybody. What's up? It's your boy, MJ. I know you like podcasts because you're listening to one right now. And if you want another one to check out, you will love Where Wine Takes You. It's a Paso Wine podcast hosted by Adam Montiel. This podcast is all about the wines, winemakers, and stories of Paso Robles. It's available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. You can also listen to it on their website, PasoWine.com. P-A-S-O Wine.com. Okay, so... I wanted to go back to um, what was the bottle, like, um, of wine that like really kind of clicked. I mean, we, we've we've talked about how you dove into the academics of it and really, but what, like, what was what was the bottle when the light bulb? There was like, oh, um, it was Ariana Acapinti SB six eight Bianco. Wow! And it's become much more widely known now, but in. 2012 or whatever, I think she'd only made like six vintages so far. And I don't remember which one it was that I had, but it was, it was the first bottle I'd, you know, that was one of the ones where he was like, can you learn something about these bottles? And then like talk to this table about it. And I did. And I, I remember reading about this young woman who fell in love with wine, was disenchanted with how lots of wines were being made. And then, you know, decided to to, to to make wine the way she had experienced wine, which was like this very sort of of the earth, like organic, respectful way. And like that, that like a young woman making that decision and then being able to translate her passion into something that I was getting to open. And I felt like I could feel it. And maybe that's over romanticizing it. But at the time, at that point in my wine trajectory, I really felt it. And I remember thinking like I could disappear into this. I don't, I didn't have the greater like technical context about wine at that time. I couldn't have, I didn't understand soil type and I didn't understand like why it tasted, why it did. But I did understand that someone had put a lot of passion and expertise into creating something that was expressive of the place that it came from. And I had deep respect for it. And I, that was it. And I was just hooked at that point on the storytelling and the history mm -hmm. side of it mm -hmm. as well. 
<clears throat> yeah, you you speak with so much reverence uh, about I love it <laughs> and, and joy. No, it's it's awesome. Um, so you uh, get your advanced psalm certificate in 2014. Um, and like, what was that like? Because we know there's been some some controversy around the court and all this stuff. Right? So what what was that experience like for you going through? Because it's rigorous as as on its own. And then, uh, and there's not a lot, and you know, notoriously not a lot of women, and then not a lot of women of color. Like, any challenge? I mean, obviously, what you know, if you want to talk about any challenge you faced, or like, what was that experience like? Um, I mean, I have to say, in when I was in it, I genuinely felt. Like, I didn't really focus on the court at large, honestly, because I was so busy. I mean, mm-hmm. I was working. At that mm-hmm. point, I was I was living in New York, and I, I was working, um, you know, at the wine bar and, and at, you know, at La Berna soon after. And so I focused on what I was doing, probably with blinders on to some extent, because mm-hmm. um, I had great mentors. Um, you know, I had Aldo, and I had Dustin Wilson, and those two really took a chance on someone. So here's how I saw it. There were lots of people throughout my wine career who looked at me and assumed I shouldn't be in that room. And from a from from the way that I was treated, from the two people who really helped me the most, they took a chance on me. So I was determined to do things right for them and for myself. And so that was my experience was like I I knew there were two people who are like at the top of their game and represent like in a lot of ways like for a lot of people like an institutional hierarchy of things and if you know them as people you know that's not who they are yeah but like totally. but you know you could look at like these gods in the wine world and think that and they were not like that at all they they car- encouraged me and like helped me in so many different ways and i was just i was succeeding in that lane and um it was only you know later i didn't so in within the court i personally didn't experience like a lot of what I learned later, a lot of people were experiencing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. once I did know that stuff, I sort of chose to just quietly separate from it. Mm-hmm. Like I was, I did, I was, you know, ready to take the MS. I, I sat for theory. Um, and then it, there were certain, I, start, I started to see the big picture in a completely different way. And it was actually, uh, you know, it was in like, I, I, it was actually in like January of 2020 when I was like, I, I actually don't think I'm going to do this anymore because I started to sort of see the inner workings when I went to a, a, a summit mm-hmm. and um, it didn't, it didn't feel like I was actually going to be part of it for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. There were, I, no one explicitly said anything, but you know, there was a, there's a lot of emphasis on like wanting to, I don't know, like there were, there, I felt that there was emphasis on like me being there because I wasn't a white man. No, I and know. I, I, mean, I, I mean, I didn't I, feel good yeah, about that yeah, at that time. Yeah, and this is prior yeah. to a lot of stuff like yeah. becoming public. And yeah. I, no one said anything explicitly, but I did kind of feel like that. And I kind of quietly decided not to do it. Yeah. Um, and then of course, everything became very, you know, public. And yeah. it's, you know, the, the, I think, you know, they're working to, to fix that stuff from within, but it's not, it's no longer something that I really feel like I'm part of or mm. uh, care to pursue. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, yeah, I was going to ask. So, how'd you end up in New York from from Pittsburgh? What what brought you to New York? Did you have a job when you moved here? Like or yeah, like, what? <laughs> sort said... of. I never wanted to. I never saw myself living in New York. Um, 
but I, I ended up here because, thank you, I ended up here because uh, I came to visit uh, some cousins who lived here, and they were kind enough to take me out to dinner, um, and I I met Aldo, they took me to Liberta, and we sat at the bar, and uh, they, they introduced me to Aldo, and I had actually come into town a night early so I could have coffee. I had cold e- I'm, I'm allergic to not working and so even though i was coming to visit people i had cold emailed a bunch of um uh of of like master psalms and i was like can you please talk to me sometime this weekend and dustin wilson responded and he was like i can have coffee with you on this time at this place and i was like thank you and he was so nice he's to a me. great guy yeah right? what a guy I, I he didn't know me from anyone else at that time yeah. and um so i came in a night early so i could do that and that's why i was staying with these cousins who took me to laverne and i met aldo and um they told him I was never going to introduce myself to Aldo, but they told him that I was a sommelier in Pittsburgh, and he was like, "Cute, <laughs> like that's the sommelier in Pittsburgh." And like you know, he didn't say it quite like that, but you know, um, and uh, and then he blind tasted me on my uh, like he just kept pouring wine and blind tasting me on it, and it was harrowing. Um, but at the end of this dinner, and he never actually told me what I got right and wrong, but I was just drunk enough to like talk a lot. Um, <laughs> And uh, he, at the end of the dinner, he was like, you know, what are you going to do with your life? Do you want to, have you ever thought about, you know, leaving Pittsburgh? And I was like, maybe I'll go to Philadelphia. And he was like, <laughs> yeah. And he was like, he was like. I'm going to go to the city, Philadelphia. Yeah. yeah. And he was like, uh, what if I offered you a job? Would you, would you move to New York? And I was like. Wow. I genuinely thought he was kidding. Um, he was not kidding. He offered me a job. He was like, if you're, if you, if you would move here, I will you know, come in tomorrow for like, you know, and we'll do a formal interview, but like, I, I'm offering you a job. Um, and I was like, okay. So I took his card and then I met with Dustin the next day and I was, I, so we had you, this, you know, this guy Aldo, which I mean, obviously does, but like, it was honestly kind of as silly as that. Like I was, and I, um, you know, I see a big practical joker. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I was like, is this guy kidding with me? And he's like, he's not kidding. Have you, do you not know who he is? And, uh, and I, it was just really funny and genuine. And like, I, I didn't, I knew of him by reputation. Um, I knew how serious that, that, that whole entity was, which is why I didn't take it seriously at first, because I was like, how could he possibly be offering me this job? And I mentioned it as almost as an afterthought to Dustin. He, Dustin was kind enough to talk to me, you know, for an hour or whatever, mm-hmm. gave me great advice, great encouragement, offered to blind taste me if I was ever in the city again. And then as we were leaving, I was like, by the way, I met Aldo Sam last night at La Brina, and I think he offered me a job, but I'm not sure. And Dustin was like, I'm just going to tell you one thing. If Aldo offers you a job, you take it. If it's for a busboy position, you take it. Take it. You're never going to learn more than if you're on the floor at a restaurant like that. So I, I, I emailed Aldo from like while I was your BlackBerry. There. She, she, yeah, like, she had a BlackBerry <laughs> fingers. <laughs> I'm like, Where can I come in? And he was like, "Come in right now." Oh my god! And I did. Yeah. And then I moved to New York like a month later. Uh, you know, and uh, there are people need to understand. There's just a lot of luck in this world too. Like. They say uh, luck is when opportunity meets preparation. So obviously you have been preparing and you're very intelligent and 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 so many amazing qualities about you. But like there's just like luck, I, you know, like totally. 
I tell people, you see it all the time now in social media, like everybody's got their WSET or whatever. And I'm like, first of all, there's only so many jobs if you want, you know, like you see the Psalm movies, I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit. Like there's only so many of those jobs around and then it's like luck. But but then I'm also like, it's just funny, the, the connections, like I was... I was over at Skernick earlier and like there's just there's these just camps where people come out of, right? So I was getting picking up some wines uh from the the domestic manager and he was like, Yeah, you know, I'm so glad you're talking to these winemakers. You know, they were one of my fond when I left Frasca, like so like Bobby Stuckey's got people everywhere. Like, but there's like there's like these proving grounds for people, you know. A Laberna Den being another one. So you moved to New York a month later yeah. and and you walk into the Bernadan and what do you do? Well, that was to open. So actually, it was to open the Samba? Aldo Samwine. Okay. Oh, that was okay. what. That's why he had. That's why uh, he was able to. So because it was a, it was a new venture. Okay. Um, I yeah, and so I opened the the Aldo Sam Wine Bar, um, which was yeah, that's my that was my first job <laughs> in New York. Um, it was crazy. It was a huge adjustment. It was very very hard. It was probably the hardest. Like mental, I was so tired mentally and physically. It was, it was really, yeah. I mean, really, it was like a really grinding experience. Big adjustment from the pace for of, of Pittsburgh to New York. No. I mean, Pittsburgh's on the come up now, but it's never New York. I mean, it's just never going to be. Nowhere like... is nowhere is New York. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, and I, I and I know that now. I can say that confidently. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't as prepared as you think you are. Like. When, you know, on your, one of your, immediately you get there and, like, there's the wine experience soon after and, like, every winemaker and psalm you've ever read about is suddenly, like, at your table and you have 15 of them to take care of and you've just moved from Pittsburgh and only seen, read about these people in magazines and books and seen these wines in your textbooks, like, I mean, it was, it was a lot to take in very quickly and it's a very steep learning curve. (laughs) Um, and then, so how did you, uh, <clears throat> end up over at La Bernadette? Um, I was at, I, one thing I'll say, uh, you know, your point about luck and work is really interesting to think about because I definitely feel like a very lucky person. Um, I also know in hindsight, I am trying to be better about giving myself credit for where I work sure. really hard too, which is hard sometimes to do. I feel, I do feel absolutely lucky, right place, right time in a lot of things. And I also know, and what now when I look back, I think one of the things that I did well was that I constantly asked to do more. Mm. So, you know, like when I was coming for a vacation, I was emailing people to be like, can you talk to me about my career? Yeah, I know. I was thinking when about was, it like, yeah. So like I, I, I asked for those, those meetings. Um, and, then I, you know, when I, to go to Laverna and I made it very clear to Aldo that I knew, like, uh, he had to, he had to be like, you're not even close to ready to go to Laverna. And I was like, <laughs> okay, what's it going to take to get me there? And I, whatever he said it would take to get me there, I did. So, you know, if that meant I was working a double, but then like there was an auction or something happening and I'd end up working this many hours to do both, like I would do that Mm -hmm. and then you know if there was a tasting somewhere or if there was i would do literally anything that would make it clear that that's what i wanted i wanted to be over there so i think i was at i was at the wine bar for like nine months first nine months of it being open and then i that spot opened up and i got my chance to to go over um and that was yet another very steep learning 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, well, you clearly you've paid the cost to be the boss, right? Like I think I talk about that a lot. People don't understand how grueling this business is. Um, you know, whether it's the long hours, it's it's hauling cases. Like you don't get to not haul cases because you're a woman. Like it's hauling uh, cases. The whole team was yeah. female when I started at Liberian, and our seller, if you've ever seen it, it's very tall. And um, there's a lot of climbing up and down ladders with lots of wine, and it's it's physical. Yeah. And yeah. nobody got out of doing anything because right. they were <laughs> female or otherwise. It's you just everyone's grinding. So what's it like now to step into the world of Eric Rapar, multi James Board, Beauty Wear, Michelin starred chef? What's that like? Like you said, like it's a whole like another steep learning curve. What was, what's that like? I, you know, it was very, I'm full of admiration. I've been, you know, I admired Eric Repair for so many years. You know, he's a, he's a, he's someone that I've looked up to for a long time um, as a person, as a chef, as a leader. And then to be there, you know, I'm, I never want to let anyone down. Mm -hmm. And especially when I feel like I'm the steward of someone else's vision, Mm -hmm. I, I place a very high standard on that. And I think that's the standard that when you're in fine dining, you have to achieve in order for the experience to be cohesive because there is a strong vision, there's a strong point of view, there's a certain standard of of service and aesthetic and everything else that has to go into that and obviously expertise in the kitchen. Um, and I I to me, I was like, I have to I have to be able to meet that and hopefully exceed it where I can. That'll be my contribution here. But the baseline is making sure that like that I'm being respo- a responsible steward of someone else's pure vision of expertise. Um, so it was a lot of pressure. Like, and there's a lot of pressure there, and then I put a lot of pressure on myself. Um, and you just, I don't know, you just, it's, yeah. I, I, it, it reminds me, I remember Aldo saw me in the hall one night looking somewhat dejected. And I tried at the, especially early days, tried very hard not to show him that. Now we're friends, and so he's definitely very aware when I'm unhappy. Um, <laughs> but, but at first I was like, always be smiling in front of Aldo. And um, I think he caught me off guard, and he said, he was like, you know, I just want to tell you something about New York. New York is like a grinding stone, and it will make you into the sharpest version of yourself that you can ever be. But you have to make sure that you're taking steps to make sure it doesn't break it, break the blade. Um, and I feel like Laburn and and that whole experience of working and learning and growing there was a really great grindstone, made me as sharp as I could possibly be in that field and let me see like exactly when I had to launch off into something else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I didn't break there. Wow. Um, any, any crazy uh, service uh, stories like, ridiculously expensive bottles of wine you uh, had to open like, <laughs> like yeah there was some you know we got to open some unicorns <laughs> uh i think the craziest one thing i'll say is like there was a with the collectors who kind of allowed i mean i was not buying or drinking these wines that's right. very important to remember when you're you're looking at like glorifying like the sound life like you're not drinking these things but collectors what are you talking who, about yeah check out my instagram <laughs> 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 that's <laughs> 
insane. Because you know what I was not doing? Drinking like a Jeroboam of 1924 Chateau Osson, which is by far the craziest thing I opened. Okay. Um, but like, but the collectors who did bring those things in, one thing that was shared amongst them, I think, of, of all the ones that I remember the most clearly, it's because they had a real excitement around sharing that experience of opening that bottle with as many people as they could. Mm -hmm. And it was really cool because they were bringing in like tons of bottles. So they couldn't possibly physically drink all of this wine. So they were, they would be like, Sam team, make sure you're tasting this. Like it's important that you get to experience it. And I loved that. That was the best education. Like I was serving wine to people who had been drinking wine longer than I've been alive right. and have the access to things that I can't afford. Right. And oh. to learn from, that was really cool. So yeah, the Jeroboam of nineteen twenty four Oson was a was is like one of oh, was it two or three made, and that came directly from the chateau. Um, the chateau, and it was I mean it was incredible. It was a it was a vertical tasting of Oson. So that was a huge moment, and also that guy had just such an enthusiasm about sharing. Um, and then I don't know I'm in the twenties, but like at, at nineteen twenty five. Castillo guy, um, yeah, wow. the Reserva Especial uh, Rioja. It, that wine was insane. Like it spent. I we opened it. And I was like, it's got to be a fake because it was so fresh. The acid right. <laughs> so. was so crazy. And then I like you know tasted it, gave it a, the the guy who 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 got it was like so sweet and like wanted us to. He wanted to talk about it. So I learned that that particular wine had spent like had a pH of like, it was like Riesling pH, right? Like it was an insane, insanely high acidity. And, um, and that it had been aged in, in cask for like 45 years before it was, it, I mean, it was just nuts. The way that wine was made and what it ended up tasting like on the table, I was like really astonished. And, but again, the thing that makes it memorable is the fact that someone was excited to share that knowledge with me yeah. and I loved it. Yeah. That's really cool. It's really cool. Um, <clears throat> so, it was during your time at La Bernadette that you got a call from your friend Derek Wallace. Yes. And um, what did he say? Uh, to paraphrase, uh, do you want your dream job? Yeah. Like, okay. I mean, it, it's so he, Derek is a really was at that point also like a very good friend of mine. Okay. Knew that we had a shared passion for food and for experiences around food. Um, he knew that I loved working with kids. He knew that I uh, had a passion for literature and writing as well. And... Derek, yeah, Derek came up with like the greatest idea I'd ever heard, which was how to combine all of those things and share it with people. Um, and that was that was the idea for Kalamata's Kitchen. Was his was um, was the inception of this a character that would excite kids to be to learn about the world through food. And he basically called me to say, "I feel like you're the perfect person to bring this character to life. Do you want to do it?" And like, how many people get called by a friend and say, "Do you want your dream job?" Like, that's what happened to me. It was amazing. And so how did Kalamata come about? I mean, so, like, then how did this, you know, how did it come about, the character? I drew a lot on my own. I started to, that's, like, a, at a point in my life where I was able to look back on on years of, you know, kind of conflicting identity issues and whatever else and really hone in on what made my childhood and my life special. Um, and what was magical about that. And I, I, I truly, for all the bad that I remembered very vividly, I truly had an extraordinarily privileged life in that I got to travel a lot. Mm -hmm. I got to eat all this great food. Mm -hmm. I got to learn about 
other people and cultures. My parents love to eat food from other places too. And I thought, well, what if we could make, like there was a way for us to um, get families who didn't necessarily grow up that way to be able to experience all of these cuisines and therefore the cultures behind them uh, by creating this character and, and inspiring kids to want to do it. And so that was it. We just wanted, we were, we were very mission driven in that. We, we, we really wanted to use food and this character to create more curious, courageous, compassionate kids. Um, we felt like, you know, food's the best, easiest, most delicious handshake into someone else's life. Um, you know, if you can teach a kid that trying something for the first time isn't a scary experience and you do it with something low stakes like a food, a new food, then we think that that translates out into life and like maybe other new experiences aren't so scary after all. Mm -hmm. So, you know, by teaching open-mindedness through food, we think we're creating better people overall. Um, more empathy, more understanding, more curiosity about the perspectives of someone whose life is not like your own. Mm. So <clears throat> let's, let's, let's go into the book. So you, you started saying you were sketching a lot back then. So did you... Oh no, I can't draw to save my life. I, I did. <laughs> <laughs> it was like little stick figures. Yeah, I can this do that. Just call him out. <laughs> She's in the draw. kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, no, no, no. The the I, the illustrations are all done by a okay. fabulously talented woman um, named Joe uh, Cosminas Edwards. Uh, but the the story ideas were really. Are they roughly based on some of your experiences? Like obviously, I think when any, even people say they write fiction, I think. There's like your life just because you can't get away from yourself, right? You write, you write what you know, right. you know, and and absolutely this first this book um, is very much inspired by my own childhood. So in this book, um, Kalmata and Al Dente are a little nervous to go for their first day of school. I love that Al Dente. Yeah, he's a silly guy. He's a uh, he's her stuffed alligator pal, um, <laughs> and they go everywhere together, and uh, you know it's he's very very real to her and. Um, you know, they're a little nervous to start school and um, she has to be reminded of the things that make her feel brave. And for me, I, I always felt the most at home and by, you know, and, and in that, in feeling at home, the most brave and strong when I was sitting in the kitchen while my mom was cooking. And so this story follows, uh, technically what's happening is her mom is cooking dal okay. in the kitchen. Okay. Kalamata is being transported by the sounds and the smells of the kitchen uh, and feels brave in, in, in is reminded of all the ways that she feels brave through this food and this food experience. Um, so, the, yeah, that's a direct. And the, the recipe in the back of the book is um, my mom's dal recipe that I grew up oh, eating. Oh, that's so special. Now, um, help me out. Derek, is, is he a book? Uh, is he in publishing or something? Is that how I just? No, Derek um, used to, to work in a corporate environment that he really hated. He hated. Um, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. he, you know, he, he left because he, he the environment was toxic. Um, he was feeling really burnt out on how uh, just people were not being respected. Women were not being respected. People of color were mm -hmm. not being respected. And um, he wanted to start something. He has a really entrepreneurial spirit and he's the best ideas guy I've ever met in my life. Um, and he wanted to start something that could actually do some good in the world. Change, you know, sometimes I, I think this all the time, like, and I, I, it, Sometimes it's like grownups, we're too late, you know? It's no, it, like, it, how, do no, we, I mean, how do we change this? How do we so stop true. this from happening? You you teach, you 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 make sure that kids know better from an early exactly, age. Exactly, exactly. Um, yep. So he wanted to do something like that. And, okay. and 
it just so happened that we were friends and and he knew we could build this together. So I'm like, I'm imagining like, you know, the pitch meeting. It's like, it's like Dora the Explorer, but with food. You know what I mean? Like, it's uh, like. You're so close. <laughs> well, actually, what we say is Dora the Explorer meets Anthony Bourdain. It's no reservations meets Dora the Explorer. <laughs> I, I'm born to do it. <laughs> it hits, though. It does. No, 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 it does hit. Um, so, <clears throat> so you guys built out this first book. Um and then um, you've, you've written a few more. Is that correct? So, th- yes. So this is actually technically, I suppose, my fourth book. But the first three were self-published. Right? Okay. So we did um, three books self-published. And the, the point of that was really um, we always saw Kalamata's Kitchen as being a whole world, right? Of products, books, experiences, shows, everything. Um, and so we started – we wanted to we, – we wanted to get – the word out. We mm-hmm. wanted people to fall in love with this character. Then we wanted to find ourselves in a favorable position to go to traditional publishing houses and production companies. And that's what we did. So the first three books that we put out, we put out pretty quickly. Um, and uh, I did one with Chef Repair, actually. Um, and uh, they featured like Kalamata and a chef going on a the chef's childhood memory. Um, and that was really to like shore up, like really prove to people that like this was a whole world because spun off of that, there were products, there were tasting events, um, there were there's a travel guide, there's a whole world of Kalamata's Kitchen that exists outside, and the characters are there for kids to love them, and all of the other things we're creating, the activity guides on our website, the other stories, that's all for that's resources for parents. Kids need them, parents or kids love them, parents need them, and um, and so when we you know. We took that whole package and that whole idea to traditional publishing, and this is our first book with Penguin Random House, first in a multi-book series, um, that is now at kind of wider distribution or you know mass distribution because of it. Uh, so there was a there was a big picture um, even right at the beginning uh, with the whole company. So what was the book? Um, that's first of all, Bravo. <laughs> Thanks. That's brilliant. That's how you do it. Like that is like that's. That's a vision, right? And I, and I love what you said. Like, I got a buddy, had a buddy. He don't talk to me anymore, but not because anything I did, just because he, you know, because he's he's fifty three and he's got like a three year old kid. And I was like, you're gonna be seventy at your child. <laughs> we can't hang out anymore. Um, <laughs> but um, like I tell him, he's he's an attorney, right? And he's got means. I'm like, you stop taking your fucking kids to Disney every year, man. Take them to you. Go to Paris. To Europe, Go to Spain. Yeah. Go to Europe. Like, like that's what people do. Like, you, it doesn't matter if your kid's an infant; it's a baby. Like, you, exp- you expose your kids to some stuff, right? So, I want to make him buy your book for his <laughs> well, daughter. Thanks. Yeah, I want to make him buy your book because, because I think, it, I think, I, I mean, the concept's true, right? Let's think about, um, I don't know what was uh Eddie Wang, he's had that series fresh off the boat, and he yeah. would talk about going to school with his school lunch, and he'd have traditional Asian food, and the kids like, "What that stinks? What's that like?" Like, I had that experience. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was going to ask you, like, did your mom send you to school with like dal and and paneer and yeah, uh, and I would kill for this stuff now, right? But back, know, it was like, back in the day, I was like, "Can I have school lunch pizza, please?" <laughs> like, <laughs> you don't know it, yeah, you, but. It's not even, yeah, so, you know, we want to foster that sense of curiosity. I think that's key is, like, you have to get people, kids and grownups, have to want 
to learn about someone else's right. perspective yep. in order for any of this to work. Yep. And I think we're at a time now where parents are looking for ways to make sure that they're teaching their kids to want to ask a question instead of immediately judging something, okay. you know, and mm -hmm. like, yes, travel is one way to do that. Not everyone is lucky enough to be able to, right. but food is a great way to travel without traveling right so you can eat vietnamese food without going to vietnam and you can still really mm -hmm. get a great sense of a culture and history and you know the the you know all the passion and and the, the lives that are devoted to making sure that that food's in front of you at that time that's all really important too you don't have to actually get on a plane and go there mm -hmm. though that's awesome that's yeah. awesome no no i love that you know? and 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 you know you got me thinking of I, forget, I talk to so many people these days. I don't know where I said this, but I was having a conversation with somebody. We're saying, um, well, you know, oh, it was IG Live. And someone I said that New York's the, the greatest wine city in the world. And they're like, why, why is that? I'm like, because, yeah, there's great wine in all the European cities, but you, you can't get a California wine there. You can't necessarily get a wine from Argentina or Chile or Uruguay, you know, like, so this is the place where everything, every culture comes through. So to your point, um, you can eat probably 99% of the cuisine in the world in New York City somewhere. There is, there is a corner, there is a pocket somewhere where, where, where you can have, uh, Bhutanese food, you know, or Nepalese food and, you know, and like, and you just, and it is such a way to travel, right? Like, like, um, Oh, I had a, my last guest. He was say his his mother was from Fort Wayne, Indiana. So it was just meat and potatoes, right? Like, um, but like you know, I don't think I had plantains till I was like in my twenties. I don't think I had you know something like hummus. You know what I mean? But like in a city like New York, and with a boy, like literally, you could live in the Bronx, and you know, people need to go up and get a chopped cheese from the bodega. You know what I mean? Like uh, people need to have um, uh, you know, Oroy's compoyo. People need to have. Every type of food here, and like you can, you can experience the world. Um, so I, I agree with everything you said. So while you're doing all this, so you were still working at La Bernadette, correct? Yes, when okay. we started, I was. Yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> that was a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think you said earlier you like you like have high standards for yourself, and you can't really appreciate. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're in it. Yeah, <laughs> you just grind. Sometimes you just grind, though. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like it's like they, what's the thing? A fish doesn't know it's in water. When you're in it, you're in it. You know what I mean? You're, yeah. Um, so that first book you said was actually about uh, Eric, and um, so I get you guys. Um, you and Derek were when were you CBS this morning? When were you on CBS this morning? Uh, 20, 2019. I'll, I'll hook you up because thank she, you. She struggled. I love it. She does. She does not know these dates. I don't. I'm <laughs> super a, bad at dates. I'm I know, sorry. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and it's right off your website. So. So you made the debut on CBS this morning, and then. Eric was a spec. Did you know Eric was going to be there, or he? Yeah, okay, yeah. Because okay. the third, so that was the third of the self-published books. Okay. Um, it was really, it was a very sweet, genuine story. Like when I started Kalama's Kitchen, I was still working at Laburnan. Um, they were really supportive. I was nervous to tell them about it, right. um, because of course the standards of you right. Because you are said theirs. you're entrusted to someone's vision. Yeah, and, like, and you can't be and, having your vision when you're trying to do my vision. Well, I mean, what I, I realized was that he was ac he's actually an extraordinarily encouraging person, and also, I mean, I will also say they said when you're at Laburnan, you are a hundred percent at Laburnan. Can you do that? And I said yes. 
Um, and they believed me. So mm. that was a really mm. great, you know, I, that was one of the first times in my life that I felt like I was really good at my job was when they, they entrusted that to me. Um, and then, uh, and so, you know, every time I wrote a book, so I'd done two and every time I did one, I'd give, I'd give like one of the first copies to Chef Repair. And this is like a thank you for letting me kind of like do both things and excel, try and excel at both. And um, I handed um, the second You are one. excelling at both. Oh, Just thanks. so we're clear. <laughs> thank you. Um, and I, <laughs> and I, uh, I handed so, the second I love one. that. I mean, it, I love the humility. It just, I, 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 I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know what to do. <laughs> She's blushing. <laughs> um, I just, just me, it. her, and my producer. <laughs> But anyway, I'm sorry. But no, I I gave him the second one, and he was like, "Okay, this is great, but like, when you know, am I? Can I give you one?" And I was like, "Are you serious?" Because <laughs> uh, I wasn't ever, I didn't want to impose. Assume, yeah, I didn't want to impose. Yeah. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. he very like kindly was like, "You know, I, I wouldn't mind being in one." And I was like, uh, "Okay, are you serious? Like, we'll do that." And so I we did the third one together, and then yeah, like you know, sort of PR things came up, and you know, I met um, Michelle Miller from CBS. Uh, I was the Sam at a at the uh, icon dinner at the Beard House, okay. um, and uh, she happened to be in attendance, and we met there, and she stayed in, we stayed, you know, in kind of in touch, and and she was very interested, and she was like, I'll have you guys on if, you know, and, and Chef Repair went on Cheddar with me also, we did like my first live TV thing was actually on Cheddar, where we were like at the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, I'm sitting next to Eric Repair, one of the greatest chefs in the world. And we're just like chatting about this book I wrote. It was it was wild. Um, then we did you know the CBS spot, and throughout all of it, he couldn't have been kinder, more encouraging, and more generous with his time. Um, and he shared his story with not just with me, but then with every kid that got to read it too. Mm-hmm. And that was really special. Wow, wow. <clears throat> now, do I understand it correctly? Because I actually have a production team, everybody. You guys, and I talk about my production team all the time. They're the best. Um, they read the trades. I, uh, and it, it, it come across that Kalamata's Kitchen has partnered with Imagine Entertainment, um, which is the one and only Howard and Grazer Productions, Ron Howard and Brian Grazer, to bring Kalamata's Kitchen to the screen. She's taking a big sip now, so... <laughs> yes. <laughs> what? <laughs> Does, he's won like awards and shit, like Academy Awards and yeah, shit. Yeah, they've made some movies we've heard. Okay, of. so um, is this a. Um, wow. So, yeah, what's going on? I feel this is one place where I feel exceptionally lucky. Um, that is that is like if you talk about a dream scenario, we have it with Imagine Entertainment, with with Ron Howard and Brian Grazer, and also with Stephanie Sperber, who is you know our person there at Kids, Imagine Kids and Family. Um, they we're 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 in the production of a, an animated series, um, and uh, I'm I'm there's a live action series in, in the works as well. Um, it's very exciting. Like it's, it's a, it's a, every day I feel like I'm learning something new. I didn't know how to do any, I didn't know how to read a children's book when I did it. I don't know how to do this either, but like what's exciting, what's very exciting is that like we keep working with people who are so, so good at their jobs. Yeah. You like don't fuck around. Like you are like, I'm in awe. I, every day that I get level, if someone is better, like I think most people are better than me at most things than I am. And like at this, in this situation, I get to look at some people who are like the best at what they do and learn from them. To me, that's the dream scenario. I am 
every single day I get to learn from experts and it's really cool. That's just like... <laughs> it's really cool. Okay, so how did it, like did they, did they contact you? Were you sending out pitches? Like how does like how do you how do you get into Imagine Entertainment? Like seriously, like that's like I mean, because like we know how you got you know you got to Sambar, your your cousins. <laughs> you know, you emailed a bunch of people. You came in that early, you know, because uh, because Dustin was there to clock with you, and your cousins like we got to take you here, and they're they're big up in you to Aldo, and he's blind tasting you. Like how like what happened? How how did I want how did there was a lot that happened. There was um you know so there were a couple different parts to it. Um one. Uh, is that we found great representation. Okay. And I, that's a huge part of it, right? Like there's a lot of rooms you just don't get to be in unless you have great representation. Mm-hmm. And we got excellent representation. Um, and so, and also kind of at the same time, um, just through people we'd met. So also at the Icon Dinner, I was fortunate enough to meet Ava DuVernay. Um, Ava! I, like what a dream scenario that was for me, and we kept in <laughs> this touch. This is why as well. I keep asking the questions, right? <laughs> There's so many layers. Here. It's inc- it, I mean, what a what a dream that was, and um, she she was interested and more importantly encouraging mm-hmm. um, to seek out opportunities to dive deeper into who Kalamata was, really play up like her identity. Like we 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 did a lot of like that prompted a lot of us going, okay, we're seeing validation for this idea. Mm-hmm. It went from Derek and me going, I think this might be a good idea to being like, yeah, this is a, this is a good idea. And mm-hmm. we still say that to each other on the phone every now and then we're like, hey, Derek, I, th- I think this, this might be a good idea. And it was conversations like that, with people like Ava and with our representation who were really making us feel like that. Um, and so, you know, we had a conversation with her and we had conversations with all the people that our representation set us up with. And in LA, we went out and we were pitching. She's we taking meetings. There you go. Tell us to be one now. Taking me. I'm taking pitches. I'm, <laughs> I'm on a lot at Sony. I'm over here. I haven't I'm like talked there. about this in a really long time and it's like feels surreal to say out loud. Um, but that's what we did. And, and you come in, hi, Sarah, love the book. Come on, sit down. Like that whole, is it like the whole, the whole, like, you know, when you see those movies of people coming into the agency. Yeah. It we're, like we're, that. And, 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 and you're, you're probably doing like, we're so excited. We heard, we love the book. You're like, you were like, I'm Sarah from Somerset, Pennsylvania. Yeah, pretty much. I like, yeah, of course. I like forgot my name a couple times, in the, like in my head. I, I think it, they, they went okay. But like, I was really nervous. And like, you know, when you, anyone who's created something, mm-hmm. I think and probably can relate to this feeling of like, you know, your friends tell you it's really good and your parents tell you it's really good. And you're like, is it really good? Or are they just telling me that because they're really kind and lovely people? And that was the stage I probably should have known it sooner, but like that was really the stage where I was like, oh no, people really like this. And it was very empowering um, and really validating and very humbling. Also, like you you just suddenly realize like what's in front of you. Mm -hmm. And I was very grateful, very grateful to even, I could have been in, in, in just one conversation, even if it hadn't worked out, I would have been grateful to have had that opportunity. It was really cool. Wow. So, um, you wrapped up your time at Laberna Den. I think you spent five years there. Yeah, just and, about, yeah. And you left uh, right when COVID was kicking, starting kicking in February 2020, right? Crazy. Yeah. Yes, that was that was really wild. I I was I had been doing kind of a part time schedule there at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh... sorry, 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 Eric. 
Uh, Marty's on the phone. Scorsese, sorry. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> it was, they were, uh, <laughs> you know what? He was very understanding. <laughs> Um, so was Aldo. I can't. I can't leave Aldo yeah, out of that no, conversation. No, no, Aldo I, I was the say, yeah, best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was. Uh, I was doing kind of a part-time schedule there. I was doing both, and I remember going to Aldo and to Chef Repair and just being like, "I love you guys, and I'm really grateful." And I, and they were like, "We go in peace." They, you know? they, like they it was great. They yeah. were really happy I mean, for me. They, I mean, Eric has to know because he was friends with Tony. He, he knew it was like you could see where your trajectory was going. He, he, could, he knows. He was very. He was. He couldn't have been kinder yeah. and and more encouraging. And same with Aldo. Um, and I left in yeah, I left in February of 2020. It was really funny is that I uh, I left. I like handed in my testament to Aldo and all that stuff. And like a week later, he was like, "Can you come do this event?" And I was like, <laughs> "Yes, of course I will," because I already missed it. <laughs> Right, you take and I love yeah. it. It was so fun. I mean, I was happy to be back already, but um, but then everything that was the last thing I did, and then everything shut down. It was a really crazy time to leave restaurants, um, and very hard to watch all of my friends in the industry go through what okay. I would have been going through with them yeah. had I still been employed by a restaurant. Yeah, yeah. Um, how's how's uh. Mr. Thomas, feel about it, everything is going on. Mr. Thomas, <laughs> love it. Um, my husband is the most. Uh, I didn't. My name is Sarah Thomas. He yeah. is Tyler Hake. He's, oh, because uh, oh, he's like me and my wife. Okay, so you're. Yeah, okay. I didn't. You're I didn't, I didn't change my name, but I. We can call him Mr. Thomas from now. That sounds fine. Yeah. Um, he. Uh, no, he. He. He is. The Sorry, Tyler. Loveliest, like most encouraging person in the world, and I couldn't have done any of this, literally any of it, without him because. Um, yeah, I mean, just for for any number of reasons, for emotional reasons, for psychological reasons, for financial reasons, for everything. He's been my support for so many years um, and continues to be that person for me. All right, cool. So you left um, La Bernadette and obviously come out of his kitchen is doing very well. Um, I, I, I'm sitting here with you for the past almost nearly two hours. I can really see the vision you have of touching parents and children, like you said, and creating a whole universe. She's got it. She's got it. She's on an empire. <laughs> you are on an empire. I mean, I mean, it is. Like you said, like there's so many events around it. Like you can have someone teaching the kids over here and the parents are drinking. They're at the 1920 Jeroboam Ozone <laughs> vertical tasting over there, you know. Um, but uh, Tasting you, is tasting. Yeah. You guys launched what is called Mind Open Fork Ready? Yes. Talk about that initiative. Yeah. So the Mind Open Fork Ready initiative is based off of our Taste Bud Pledge, which is I promise to keep my mind open and my fork ready to try each new food at least two times and to share what's on my plate when someone doesn't have enough. And so that's the those are the words that Calamata and El Dente live by, the mantra of the company. And the Mind Open Fork Ready initiative is a line of, um, we, we want to spread that message as far as we can spread it. We think if people live by those words, the world will be a better place. So we thought, how can we do that? And how can we give, this is our give back component in our company. Um, so we created a product line, mm-hmm. the Mind Open Fork Ready product line, this, all of all the sales of which all go to No Kid Hungry. Um, and we have some of the most page out of the Newman zone. Just everything, everything goes back. Give it back. I you know, that. like we, we are a small business. We're mm-hmm. still in a startup like 
yep. you know, mode. And also we wanted to build that give back component into the foundations of our business. That's the only way you do it because people don't realize it's like so hard. Like you get like whatever your habits are, they just get ingrained. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's just, the thing is, we know that we've been given so much in life. We're lucky people, you know, from we, Derek and I come, couldn't come from more different backgrounds it, for a lot of reasons. And we both feel incredibly lucky for, for a lot of reasons. And so at this stage in our lives where we're in a place where what we do has the potential to do real good, we want to make sure that we're doing it across a spectrum of accessibility. And like, yeah, it's true that some, not everybody can afford to buy a new book for their kid. Like that's something we never want to forget. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to make sure that like our, our, you know, at least something that we're doing across the board as we are trying to spread this message of, of, of compassion through food, which is free. Uh, and also give back what we can financially as well um, through the Mind Open Fork Ready Collection. And we have a lot of really cool chefs that have come on to be ambassadors um, for Kalamata's Kitchen and for that collection for that reason, is that they also feel that that uh, that mission, and they're inspired by that mission. So um, you have a fourth book that's about to be released? This is the this, this is, is this, this is, is book one slash got four, it right got it. so yeah. this one came out in July um, it's our first book with Penguin Random House gotcha. so with traditional publishing the yes. first three were with um, we self published so let's talk about that for a second because um, you know we live in the the instant expert era of the internet and and a lot of self publishing but also what I heard was it was like proof of concept when you were self publishing like. Um, how does it feel to be like with a traditional, like, what do you see the importance of it being with a traditional public publishing house when, when anybody could just write a book nowadays? Well, there's a, I mean, self-publishing is hard too, for the record. (laughs) Um, but, um, you know, with traditional publishing, obviously like this is Penguin Random House is, you know, the biggest uh, publishing house in the world. Mm -hmm. And so we're, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing to be connected with people who have such a history of expertise and such a reach. Um, and so, you know, that's the thing is we want to spread this message as far as we possibly can. And so the distribution that comes with one of the best, most respected um, publishers and distributors in the world is unparalleled. So, you know, that's, that's huge for us is to be able to get this book into the hands of as many families as we possibly can. And Penguins are, in, the Random House Kids is just an incredible partner in it. Very, very supportive of, you know, the message and, like, getting it to kids. So, um, book tour, kind of like, what, what's, like, in the works uh, to support the Kalamata's Kitchen that's going to be on the big screen? Yeah, I mean, in the... Sitting here with, like, like, like... Like 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 uh, Martha Stewart, like someone who's like, but okay. like, but, but like with, but with a mission, like Martha with a mission, you know. Besides money, you know what I mean? Yes. Does she have a mission? I think she probably has a mission. I saw her a girl drink some martinis. I, she's on a mission. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, <I'm> just... <laughs> her like COVID martini things are like very funny and very cool. She has a mission. Um. So I mean, listen, I I, I am grateful for the support of like people. You know, follow like if you. People can follow along on our social media, on our website. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we are tr- in the COVID era. Events look very different, obviously. Sure. I do readings in in schools mostly virtually, but you know, in person when I can. I, you know, I go around and I I, I pop up at green markets and we t- we take kids on food adventures. You know, and we do tasting events and we do book events and there's lots of things to. We're we're always trying to like react to what we can can you know in the given the circumstances do as much as we can do 
um, in person. And for what everything we can translate virtually, we do as well. Um, so I would say the easiest way to keep up with all of that is just to follow us on on the socials and sign up for our emails and. We'll get Make to sure that. We'll, we'll wrap up with that. She's trying to wrap it up. We're oh, not no, done I yet. Just, We're not done yet. <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, so, 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 um, are, are, is, are both your parents still alive? Are they both? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Good. Um, good. Um, what do they think about all this? Because they- I mean, because you know, there's a stereotype of you know, like you, like your dad was a doctor. You were going to medical school, like, and then you know. Then you went to work in a restaurant. <laughs> you go to cave you work in a restaurant. And I, there was a look on your face like, so like, how do they feel like now that the journey has come here? Because there had to be a point where you're working in a restaurant and like, you know, Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. They yes. were, what was that? Was it that Indian expression like, look at your face? They had like, to be like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. No, they never said that to me. But that would have been pretty funny if they did. Um, no, they, you know, I don't, there were many steps in this path that they didn't understand. And they'll be the first to tell you that. Like, I'm pretty sure, like, I was working at the Burnett, and my dad was like, you could still go to law school. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. But, but it, it's not because they didn't respect what I was doing. It's just that they had a set idea of what their kids would do. Yeah. And um, I respect that. I, at a certain point, I had to come to peace with the fact that, like, they just wanted what was best for exactly. me. And still do. Right. Um, and I do think that despite achieving what I've achieved in say the, say just the food world, they don't know anything. They didn't care or know anything about the food world. So like who cares if I'm working at a three Michelin star restaurant, if they don't care about Michelin stars. So I had to come to peace with Mm -hmm. like the certain titles that I was achieving or whatever, like weren't really going to mean anything to them. And like, that's fine. Now I think they, I, I think they're very proud. I do. We don't say those kind of things, okay. really, but like uh, I do. I feel like they feel I'm. I've arrived at where I should be. I do think my husband had a really big role in convincing them of that mm-hmm. because they he's now their favorite child, <laughs> um, and I think you know his stability in like a more traditional career path has made them feel better about me being the daughter that they didn't quite know what to do with. And they're like, well, as l-, and that's where I realized, like, that's what I mean. They always just wanted me to be happy, stable, healthy, safe. Yeah, yeah. I am. I'm doing something that they didn't quite picture, but all of the above is checked off, so they're good. <laughs> <laughs> and the book is dedicated to my mom. And so now that she's seeing me talk about her a lot more, I think she's also, like, getting <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, have you have you traveled? Uh, have you been on a plane in the past year and a half or anything? Uh, actually, since the book is released, since the, have you been anywhere on a plane? On a yeah. Well, my parents live in Florida, so okay. I did go. And and is, your, is like, did you see your book like in the airport, like airport bookstore? Have you seen that yet? Like, what's it like? Because so, like, I remember I've seen it in bookstores. Like, like I walked like, into like a Barnes and Noble, <laughs> and I was like, Oh, I wrote that. That's gotta be. How, that's what's that like? Crazy. That must be crazy, right? That's it is really wild. Because I saw this picture on Instagram. It was you were out with uh, Rita and Victoria and like uh, somewhere. Might have been when I don't know what it was, but like and like you look at Victoria's feet and the people will like ah oh, my favorite book in the airport. Like that's gotta be trippy to like 
going to a bookstore and you weren't going to look at your book like some people there might be people who are like where's my book but like i don't get you were probably just like because you love books this was established (laughs) and this is the culmination of your love of food and books coming together okay yeah but i don't usually look in the children's section and i do now so I will admit that. Like, I, I, I mean, when I'm how, looking how for books you, for myself, it's a little different. I do go to the children's section more now, but it is very surreal and really humbling and really cool um, to see it on shelves. And like when people, when other, what's really cool is when people see it and they send me pictures of it. Right. That's even really, cooler, right? Yeah. Like, oh my God, Sarah. I don't know what it is, but like sometimes I feel like it's still because I love it so much maybe and like it's hard for me to believe I made it sometimes it's like and not to be like super I've just I don't know what that is but it's like when I get pictures from other people and they're like we saw it and it's real and we love it it feels really really special yeah you mentioned that earlier I think people like when you actually create something from nothing it's pretty surreal even when it well you know like you're like whoa you know like um so what what are you most excited about in the future Sarah Thomas <laughs> Gosh, everything. I'm excited. I'm really excited for us to get back to be able to do like big in-person events with kids because one thing that I know is that when kids interact with our stuff and their parents see it, it's like it's like a light bulb goes off. They're like, we didn't know we needed this and now we know we need it. And it's so fun when, you know, that's that's what I'm looking forward to the most is getting back to like tasting events with kids, giving them the VIP pass and like a passport and getting them to taste foods that their parents will swear up and down they won't eat and then watching their parents jaws drop whenever their kid eats it miss that feeling it's awesome um and then i'm looking forward you know the next book uh i've i've been working on book two um i'm excited for that to come out i'm excited for you know for progress on the shows it's there's a lot of a lot of fun stuff coming up (laughs) right on right on um sarah um Thank you so much for Thank coming. You. You're absolutely delightful. Just Thanks. just radiant personality. And, you know, people say they want to make a difference in the world. You really are. Uh, you know, I think you're doing it the right way. Like you said, it's a, food is a great con- – it's a, it's a great conduit, you know. Um, so tell everybody where they can um, uh, follow what you're doing, how they can be a part of what you, what uh, what's, what's going on with Kalamata's Kitchen and – the uh, mind open fork ready. Where can people? Uh... Yes, yeah, sign up on our website um, for the emails and, and to keep in touch on, at calamatiskitchen.com. We're at calamatiskitchen on Instagram. Um, it, I mean, please and please send me a message too. Like you know, I'm I'm I love hearing from people uh, personally. So yeah, follow along on on all channels and there you go, everybody. <laughs> there you go. Um, Wow, this was really fun. Thank and, you. And informative. Um, th- um, thank you so much again. Okay, everybody, it's MJ. Really blown away. Uh, dynamic, uh, dynamic guest today. Uh, until the next time, cheers to the Mavericks, the philosophers, and the deep thinkers. You definitely check off those boxes. <laughs> but most of all, I gotta say peace to all my wine drinkers. We're out. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list.